Hello and welcome to You Me and the Economy. Greetings of the International Women's Day. My name is Kavita Kabir and I work for the Center for Financial Accountability. Today as we mark the International Women's Day, there are a lot of challenges in front of women from political to social. Yet the area that we have chosen today is something that impacts women every day in their lives and still remains invisible. Today we are talking about women and energy. With the climate crisis closing in, these challenges have grown manifold. I have my colleagues Bhargavi, Swati, Ashi and Priya with me today who work and research on energy and different aspects of energy. We are going to talk about the ways in which energy is produced, is it reaching women and what challenges it is posing in places where it is being produced. So let's begin with a round of introductions. Thank you, Kavita, and uh, Women's Day greetings to everybody. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on this podcast to discuss about energy and women. Uh, so my name is Bhargavi Rao, and I work at the intersection of law, policy, community action, uh, particularly in the areas of energy and infrastructure at CFA. Hi friends, I'm Swati and I work at the Center for Financial Accountability on the issues of investments in oil and gas uh, and uh, its ancillary industries. Hello everyone, I'm Ashi and I've been working on the waste to energy landscape um, in CFA and more broadly on all end of life solutions for plastic and uh, solid waste. Hello. I'm Priya Tarshini. I work with the National Finance Team in uh, Center for Financial Accountability and Women's Day greetings to everyone. Thanks, Priya, and thanks, everyone. So uh, I have a couple of simple questions for you today because I wanted to understand this whole landscape, and I'm sure our audience is also interested in this. So basically, what is the uh, energy scenario right now, and what are the challenges faced by women in terms of energy, uh, be it renewable energy or thermal or waste energy in your experiences? So maybe we could begin with Bhargavi. So looking at the energy scenario in the country, although uh, India is uh, largely electrified today, uh, there are uh, many, many villages which still don't have uh, access to the basic electricity. So if villages are electrified, it only means that, you know, a pole has reached the village and it doesn't necessarily mean the electricity is reaching all the households. So when electricity doesn't reach uh, such households, it is the women and children who bear the brunt of uh, all the challenges. And uh, that is where our conversation today starts because the SDG 5 and SDG 7, uh, which all our countries, uh, including India, committed to in 2015 was that no woman would be left behind or no one would be left behind. So in this conversation today, I think we will understand a lot more on what is happening in the energy situation in the country, and we could discuss a lot more. So as we all know, um, India today uh, gets um, much of its energy from coal. And then we also have a small percentage coming from nuclear. Then we have uh, another chunk coming from hydroelectricity and also in the last few years from the renewables. 
So when we look at all the different sectors from which energy is coming, and if we look at what is happening in areas where uh, coal is being mined or renewable energy plants are being set up, and if you focus on what it is doing to the women, uh, it is not a pleasant scenario at all. If you go to any of the coal mines, um, many of the settlements out there, uh, people who work in the informal uh, coal mining economy, you will find that most of those households don't have access to energy. And it is women who uh, go around picking coal uh, for a small uh, price every morning and evening, you will see them uh, filling up the bags and selling it. And you also see children before school and after school or on the way to school and many of them who aren't even in school uh, picking up coal and even uh, senior citizens picking coal and uh, pulling it on their bicycles, selling it for a price while they themselves have no access to uh, clean energy. And many of the women uh, in particular, I have seen in this place called Ascensol, where they have scooped up all the coal dust that has remained after coal has been taken away by a truck and converted that into small little um, pellets by mixing with it some, um, you know, probably kerosene or water or whatever. And they allow it to dry just like how cow dung cakes are put to dry. And they use that for cooking. And you can just imagine what it is to be cooking uh, in a place which is closed and where coal is burning uh, on an everyday basis. And if you move into the renewable energy sector, it is land that is taken away and many women have lost their land and livelihood. And it is mostly the small and marginal farmers who have lost. So at the household level, uh, there is no food today. And it has really hit the food security of these households. And uh, they've also lost uh, grazing pastures. Many of them used to depend on their own lands. Uh, some depended on the commons. And the commons that have all been diverted in many of the states where uh, land has been diverted to renewable energy, particularly Pavagada or Reva in Madhya Pradesh and many other places. So uh, if you go back and see what has happened in terms of many of the policies and programs, um, a few years ago, there were provisions for women to uh, buy goat and sheep and uh, graze them so that it could, uh, you know, bring them some kind of an economic um, independence, but with no grazing pastures. Uh, they, even those pastoral uh, women have completely lost the possibility of earning anything. So what happens is when at the household level, there is no food, there is no small amount of money in the women's hands, it immediately affects the nutritional intake and the nutritional security of the households come, comes down. And all of us know how uh, food is distributed within the family. It is the uh, male members who get uh, first priority and the woman is the last one to eat after feeding the children and after feeding the senior citizens. While she does a lot of work in terms of, you know, she's the one who collects the fuel, uh, that is firewood, she's the one collecting water, she's the one cooking, uh, that too in um, a very toxic atmosphere where there is no uh, clean cooking fuel. And then she gets very little nutrition. This also adds to her being undernourished. Um, so malnutrition plays a big role. And in most of these places, 
uh, we've also seen that uh, children are often pulled out of school for various reasons and the girl child is the one who uh, helps the family in all these daily chores and uh, because there is very little revenue uh, they also are in debt and the woman has no access to healthcare mobility so on and so forth uh, which kind of really adds up to the burden on the woman um and this is also true for um, other sectors which uh, swati and ashi will cover uh, we can definitely come back to um, many of the impacts that uh, women are facing today again over to swati thanks parvi for that amazingly comprehensive overview uh, you know the challenges that women face uh, in uh, accessing non hazardous energy i think as you you know rightly pointed out even energy is not neutral that way i think another example or another aspect of energy apart from electrification is that of oil and gas the gas for cooking and oil for transport and mobility and on both these aspects of energy if we look at it uh, while uh, india is increasingly uh you know claiming that more and more parts of india have access to the lpg cylinder in or lpg in one form or the other we know that the rural areas are still struggling in terms of access of these cylinders reaching their homes uh so for example we've seen uh you know adivasis in madhya pradesh where uh they are being punished for using dry dry wood from the forests for cooking uh, on the one hand but the the distributor the the distributor for the gas cylinder uh, they are unwilling to come to the villages to deliver the cylinders so the families have to actually the woman has to convince her husband to go to the nearby town to pick up the gas cylinder and come until which time she has to go into the forest to collect dry wood where some forest guard or forest official would end up harassing her uh, physically sexually verbally so this is one other aspect you know of energy that we see um, that india and the women in india are facing the part of oil which is converted then into petroleum you know which fuels vehicles again on the question of mobility we know that women do not have access to mobility the way men do uh, rural women are not encouraged to travel alone for example so even if they want were to be wanting to go to a nearby town to go to either to a hospital or to go for higher education they are unable to do that because of the patriarchal societies that we live in and where women are not allowed to go into the city alone so sure there is more uh, you know there is more transport public transport maybe or private in the villages uh, there might be a little more access today but women don't have access to that uh, you know transport so when we look at oil and gas as materials for energy we see that there is again a lopsided uh, access of men uh, to women and not just access but actually women facing violence when they try to compensate the lack of uh, distribution of lpg by using wood from the forests the other part of uh, of energy really is uh, you know of oil and gas and, and this is a nuanced understanding because uh, technically india is moving towards electric vehicles and technically india should they need less oil so then why is india still importing so much of oil 80% of our oil comes from other countries it is really diverted to fertilizers pesticides petrochemicals plastics which are all hazardous which are all toxic 
and there's a lot of plastic in our homes so increasingly we are moving away from metal and glass in the kitchen to plastics in the kitchen which is also extremely toxic uh, both in use and in production so you find women who live around these you know factories who have serious reproductive health issues we know of one region where about 80% of the women of the village had experienced one form of miscarriage uh, you know or the other which is extremely high we've also seen that these are intergenerational so a woman then transmits this toxicity to the child that is born and so it's an almost an unending cycle uh you know uh, that the woman has to experience uh, in her life and the life of her especially girl children uh, so that's the that's also an extremely concerning aspect the other part uh, on on health if you were to look at it is the kind of of uh, skin diseases and others you know that women and children face so so oil and gas while it's as simple as transport and uh you know cooking gas but but the kind of impact that the women have even you know in the refining of these materials to make them consumable either as even petroleum or you know liquefied petroleum gas is also not devoid of impacts on um, you know on women uh there are other impacts you know of these installations and we look at them later in the talk now in the discussion but i'd like maybe my colleague mim ashi could also speak to us a little bit more about the waste to energy projects uh, that india is um, you know uh, encouraging the government is encouraging and what those implications for women are thanks uh, swati and hargavi for that um, insight and overview it was very um helpful i think with uh waste to energy when we speak it is a very unconventional and of course toxic a uh, way of producing energy and right now in india it is a it is functioning at a very very limited uh, capacity but we certainly see that the government uh is pushing for a lot of these projects to be proposed and commissioned and ideally they are setting a lot of very large targets for uh, us to be able to achieve energy through the burning of waste um waste to energy plants basically burn waste as fuel uh, to be able to produce uh, energy and then use this energy uh, to supply into households and uh, the contradiction is that waste energy plants are currently being seen by the government as a, a form of renewable energy they get renewable energy credits they get subsidies from the ministry of new and renewable energy when they are in fact one of the dirtiest forms of uh, energy that uh, the world is seeing today and uh, with regards um, to women i think it's very important to look at the waste energy sector with from the point of view of the informal sector workers waste workers who are largely women and how they are impacted by this entire life cycle so um in india waste collection and recycling is majorly performed by the informal sector the recyclables are collected by waste pickers at different stages 
So it's either during door-to-door -door collection, sometimes also then from community bins, then from the dump sites and landfills where they eventually end up from the roads. And then when they are picked up, they are segregated uh, and then sold to uh, junk shops or recyclers who then uh, reprocess them and uh, make other product, products from them. And this is only, of course, high-value waste. And in this entire process, women are uh, involved at the segregation stage. And they segregate in go-downs as either daily wages or they also sometimes segregate in their uh, individual households when their husbands bring in uh, the waste that they collect from house to house. Now, one, of course, issue facing uh, the informal sector workers when it comes to waste is that the price they get for each piece of waste that is recycled is very little. And they end up earning below minimum wage most days. And this entire scenario has been made more precarious when waste to energy plants have been commissioned by the private sector. Um, for example, reports have suggested that the livelihood of waste pickers have been threatened since private companies have been given the responsibility of door-to-door -door waste collection in many parts of Delhi. And we know that if waste is not collected by the informal sector, then there is no waste for women of the in informal sector to segregate and then sell off. So every, all the women employed in that sector are then unemployed. And uh, the all waste energy plants also uh, typically run at a very, very high capacity. They, uh, we have analyzed how the capacity that they are designed for, uh, the city does not produce nearly enough waste to be able to feed these plants, to be able to make enough electricity. So for these plants to be functional and be able to make profits, they need uh, more and more waste. So actually it is in their favor to, to disincentivize uh, recycling and segregation because that will actually reduce the volume going to the plants. Um, so yeah, it's further been suggested that waste pickers don't get enough waste to segregate as it's now mostly diverted uh, to the plants that are currently working in the city. And uh, uh, then there were interviews actually conducted by Institute of Social Studies Trust in 2022. And uh, a lot of uh, informal sector waste workers who are women said that now spaces that were available to them in the city for segregation of waste and for segregating the waste and selling it and actually getting some money from there have been taken over by either the MCD or private players and they are no longer allowed to work there. And then they also reported rampant sexual and economic harassment by those who hold power above them. So right now, actually, in the waste to energy scenario and in the waste management scenario, what the government needs to ensure is that the women working in the informal waste sector are incorporated when plans about waste management of a city are made. Because also then, then the energy produced by these waste to energy plants are not accessible to the people who perform all the labor and the people who are actually rendered also unemployed by these plants because the energy generated by these plants is extremely expensive. And it costs, uh, the government has to bear a lot of financial burden for these plants in the form of subsidies and grants and um, also higher tariff rates. Uh, so economically also, it's the energy that's not accessible to a large part of the population. 
so other than that also then these plants need to be monitored so that they don't render the informal sector unemployed and uh, in within these plants there are fair and safe working conditions because working with waste is extremely hazardous for uh, the health of the worker so if you uh, look at the renewable energy landscape uh, to give you a sense of numbers and scale uh, the pavagada solar power park uh, has about 13000 acres and the number of people who are employed there on the whole is just about 4000 so that just gives you the kind of uh, employment utility scale solar power parks provide whereas the 13000 acres if it was just used as agriculture and pastoral land given and even if we assume that one acre supported only one livelihood let's assume uh, actually one acre supports more than four to five livelihoods throughout the year so even if we assume one acre supported one um, person's uh, livelihood 13000 people would have had something to eat at the end of the year and uh, the renewable energy projects itself uh, have very few opportunities for women and uh, women if at all they are hired they are hired as uh, people who can clean the glass panels but even that we have seen more recently has all been automated so the need to clean glass panels is going away uh, sometimes they are hired seasonally to cut the grass because if the grass and other plants herbs and shrubs grow beyond the um, height of the solar panels it comes in the way of the you know it it, it provides shade and the efficiency of the solar um, panels will go down so they are hired to um, cut the grass but that is a very seasonal job it's not like regularly and accessing these solar parks also is very difficult for women because in most of the rural areas uh, there is very little options for mobility and many of the women i have spoken to they usually walk that long distance for that small um, time of um, labor that they get which is informal they are paid on a daily basis and that also happens through some local contact uh and like swati said again they face a lot of uh, fear and uh, sexual harassment while accessing um, and coming back and in many places now they have taken a decision that they will not hire women for these kind of jobs because it is very unsafe for them to travel to and fro and if you look at the skill building that is happening uh, there is zero skill building Uh, for women per se most of the project um, uh, most of the programs that are offered in almost all the states are wherever this iti tra- training takes place or certificate programs takes place it's mostly predominantly um, men who are trained very few women who are trained either in uh, any of these um, panel fixing or making the panels um while the pavagada solar power park was made i have made um, many many visits uh, throughout and i have not found one single woman employed in fixing the panels most of the panel fixing and all the electrical work everything was done mostly by men and in our conversation they said oh women can't do this kind of job this is only for men so if at all we 
I think it's time we start building these kind of courses. And on the other hand, if you see what kind of skill training is happening for women, most of the programs are tailoring and beauty parlor courses and food processing and things like that, which I have a problem with because it reinforces gender. And okay, let's assume they are getting some training at the end of three months, they can set up some shop. But if they have to set up a shop, if they have to really stitch something using a sewing machine, having a powered sewing machine, the woman will be able to stitch much more because she has already gone through so much of household work. And at the end of the day, if she has to continue to pedal, that's another problem. And many women have complained, you know, if they have uh, gynecological problems, particularly during their uh, menstruation time, it is very hard for them to work during those days. So we never think of these kind of things or take a beauty parlor. Let's assume a beauty parlor is set up by a um, young adolescent girl who's received some training. And again, in my conversations with people um, across the country, actually, most of the programs in North India focus on these kind of beauty parlor and tailoring courses for women. And when I was talking to uh, one particular uh, young adolescent girl, she said uh, she underwent training and she wanted to set up a beauty parlor. Setting up a beauty parlor takes about 10,000 rupees. And uh, it requires basic, um, you know, gadgets like a um, hair dryer, um, curler, ironing, and many other little, little things for uh, hair styling and many other things for making a facial and things like that. And I realized that it's impossible for her to even repay that 10,000 rupees because she was charging like 10 rupees and 15 rupees um, to do eyebrows, 150 rupees for a facial. And I was asking her, who comes to your village to get these done? She said, oh, when there is a wedding, only I get some business. Otherwise, there is no business. So we are talking about a time when our girl children are having a whole lot of health-related issues. There's no food at the household to eat. Most of our girl children are anemic. And there is early marriage happening. And uh, in many cases, there's also trafficking that is happening. And if you see what is happening um, with the um, children that are born, most of the neonates don't even survive because the mother has no nutrition to provide the baby. So this is like a vicious circle. And we don't seem to be thinking of how just supplying basic energy to these households can improve the life of women. Imagine a woman who can use her sewing machine, who can use her, who can run her beauty parlor or anything else, a food processing unit where uh, it speeds up her work and it helps her earn some money at the end of the day. I'm sure it will go towards educating her children, providing better health care. And the quality of life itself, uh, this is simply not in any of our um, major policies and programs. In um, the EFCI conference we had in 2020, uh, I was just looking at all, uh, I had to make a presentation from a women and energy perspective. And I was looking at all the websites of all our um, major uh, departments and uh, institutions and agencies and if you just see who is sitting on the board it's all predominantly men 
and uh, you'll find the word women come up only in their annual reports under the CSR section where the CSR programs have again given them sewing machines. Um, this is something that really needs to change. And more recently, the Parliamentary Standing Committee report on energy, the Standing Committee is all male. There is not one single woman uh, who's on that committee. Uh, unless we change and bring in more women at all levels of decision making, I don't think we'll be able to look at ensuring every woman in the country will have access to energy. Yeah, thank you. I just wanted to add that point. Thanks, Bhargavi. That is a very excellent and important point that labor and how women are used as labor and usually they are lesser paid and also there is no technological innovation happening in the kind of labor that they are doing or even if it is there, we have also seen this in the agriculture field that all the machines are used by the men while the picking things, you know, the hard work, the uh, the work that requires your fingers and your bending down, all that is done by women. So thanks for that. I want to go to Priya now and I want to ask her about um, the policies, you know, that's what uh, uh, Bhargavi was also mentioning. So the policies and also who's funding these projects, how these are being worked out, what kind of, in terms of finances, let's say in general, uh, where are women placed in terms of energy and finances? Unlike my other colleagues here, I'm no expert and uh, it is actually more of learning from the rest of you, uh, from your uh, uh, summaries. And uh, so I, I, I'm just trying to put in to, uh, together all of the thoughts that uh, came, was shared. And uh, definitely agreeing with uh, the rest of you. And uh, the point that uh, recent uh, that uh, Bhargavi was uh, just making in terms of whether women uh, are at the top in most of the companies, like even now we do not have uh, women leaders. And uh, recently, I think Catalyst had come out with a report where um, there has been uh, like there is only 3.7% of CEOs of the Fortune 500 companies are women according to 20 in 2019 and it was 3.2 in 2014 so it's like a slight increase but i think with the new esg policy where in governance that uh, one of the thing is also to increase number of women uh, so we might see and they are seeing in 2020 there is an increased number of women in the top position but whether it is uh, led by women, I mean, that is definitely important, but a uh, larger question, as uh, um, you were also saying, that the imagination itself is linked with a very patriarchal, you know, a communal or a casteist notion when we talk uh, in, in the Indian uh, uh, scenario, at least, or even globally, the, uh, the framework of policies itself is... Uh, uh, that that is made on exclusion and not just women but uh, marginalized communities and since uh, right now we are focusing on uh, on gender and women so how the framework itself is exclusionary in nature and definitely women have come a long way in uh, gaining uh, their rightful place and uh, but the idea has also been to imagine these things at a large, large scale, uh, uh, you know, 
energy production whether it was uh, at a coal or like you know what it was or even right now the transition that is happening to renewable that is also imagined in a very uh, um, mega like what you were saying the the hydro i mean the uh, renewable solar uh, project that is like uh, around 13 uh, acres of land uh, that you just mentioned in 13000 Okay, yeah, 13,000. So, uh, and we see women have been a very integral part in terms of energy production and consumption. And even before, uh, you know, the coal or the industrialization of industrial production of uh, of energy uh, took place. And, but uh, their contribution has been at a um, la- uh, end or like, you know, at the primary level, whether in terms of a household level or, or as uh, Ashi was also saying, even in today, like in an informal level. So the role of women have always been invisibilized, unrecognized or, you know, un- uh, unpaid and it continues to be so. So. Uh, I think the primary thing is then unless we decentralize the model of energy and only then then we'll be able to bring in those and and most of the time these energy uh, understanding of women have also been very in, uh, ingenious or uh, non-traditional. So in that sense, uh, it is much more easier to incorporate these understandings in a very uh, decentralized uh, framework. And that is something uh, what we need to push in order to not just uh, include uh, women, but uh, all those communities that have been, uh, you know, marginalized. In in and once you go into that uh, larger framework, or even in terms of policies, you would you might have like token uh, presence or in paper that okay there has to be uh, so many women, or like we have uh, uh, policies that. Uh, would say like you have to employ women or uh, uh, where you started with of last mile of electrifications or uh, electricity to every household in the name of, uh, you know, helping women, we might have it. But when we see the implementation, when we still look at what actually happens, it is majorly exclusion. And, uh, and, and hence, uh, uh, one of the proposed, and like even today, um, I think in the SDG, like whether it is the goal five or goal eight that talks about gender equality or decent uh, work for all. But uh, we have seen that we are uh, still very far and especially like after the pandemic, uh, the impact on uh, women have been huge and whether in terms of um, them being a part of the workforce itself, uh, not necessarily particularly energy, but uh, but overall, um, like we see that the female employment and and particularly in the urban scenario, the employment has gone down uh, from um, gone down to six point nine percent less than last year, and uh, that was like twenty two point one percent less than uh, pre pandemic, like or twenty nineteen. And so we see that it has not increased, it has not come back. So once women are out of the workforce, them coming back uh, and and given in a scenario where there is an economic distress, then uh, the employment that they get is mostly uh, 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 in an unorganized uh, sector and at at a very lower level. Or when we talk about the herbal or 
uh, only where you know there there can be a pay gap when that has that is your focus or where you can get the similar work but uh, you know women are always paid less so it is in uh, those sectors that uh, women uh, get employed so i would just uh, for for now say that the visualization of uh, uh, the energy uh, scenario whether it is uh, uh, renewable or otherwise uh, unless we push for a more decentralized uh, model the framework would always be because this is something that has been there for decades so to push that uh, change will will be difficult uh, within this model so a decentralized and uh, role where you can have a more equal discussion is what uh, we need today um so you say that numbers are not very promising and it's almost the same with the policies as there are several token policies that we see from the government and from other places uh but i still want to ask everybody here that do you see a change at least in the uh last couple of years especially after the pandemic when uh, this entire thing has become even more cruel and drastic for women do you see any change uh, it could be even a community led change and uh changes on the smaller aspects in in communities or in society in different places what changes do you see and uh, how do you said that we need to push towards you know more equal policies how do we do that yeah it's a, a very interesting uh, and a great question uh, kavita unfortunately uh, again um we had an intern sometime back who was looking at uh, the policies of all the states um across uh, the country and even those states where which are performing very well in terms of their energy production unfortunately that uh, intern could not complete his work because he got covid and this was during the second wave but from his initial uh, findings we found that not one policy again mentions the word women gender girl child so we don't seem to think about women at all and uh, very recently our budget the budget 22 has no particular provision for women uh, while it makes hundreds of uh, commitments to investors and it it basically lays a red carpet to investors uh, and also like all of us here know that uh, renewable energy projects have been removed from the purview of uh, environmental clearances so there is no social impact or environment impact study that is ever done required but it it is a very serious matter that um, you know the brunt of all this uh, falls on women and if only um, the budget had ensured that there would be some kind of uh, allocation for uh, the women from the most marginalized sections can access uh, energy basic energy or if energy can come to them free of cost for a few hours through the day it will make such a huge difference to all of them and uh, that is where i think we all need to push and discuss more bring in um, this dimension of uh, all all conversations focused on women ensure more women think about it participate uh, in these discussions and also look out in our own neighborhoods see sitting in bangalore i see today that um, there are lots of people within the city who still depend on 
firewood for their cooking and sometimes even during the winter but bangalore doesn't see um, you know a really cold winter but you do see uh, women in construction sites sitting around uh, you know some firewood just to keep themselves warm or even to cook uh, in fact i live in padmanabhnagar which is uh, supposed to be the model ward in um, bangalore but the site just next to my apartment has a um, construction happening where women use uh, fuel wood to i mean firewood to uh, cook they have no access to clean energy so imagine the plight of all the migrant workers uh so these are things that we need to push um everybody to think about construction companies uh the various uh, government departments um then also the investors unless there is some focus of energy um you know projects and plans and programs uh should kind of made to be uh, uh you know focusing on these aspects Uh, otherwise they will be redundant at the end of the day and if you go to a, a village in any place across india you will find that there will be one um, point where uh, the man will be sitting in the living room with the fan on and his mobile charged and he'll be watching tv while the woman will be in the kitchen it will be a dark kitchen with no proper ventilation and she'll be using coal or firewood to cook that has to change um and change has to begin from these points and we all need to kind of work towards that and so as women we need to discuss more talk more write more make more noise <laughs> taking this conversation further about what needs to be done uh again when we look at oil and gas uh and uh these need to be refined right so while we import our oil and gas we refine them here before they can be used uh like i also said made this point earlier about how oil and gas continues to come into the country on the back of energy but is really used as material what we need to know is that while the the government is looking for india to become a petrochemical hub in the near future you know going forward and all kinds of policies and schemes and incentives are are offered uh again in the name of atmanirbhar in the name of you know dignity of the country etc etc so that we don't import and we only export but somebody is paying a price for that refining you know of oil into various in petroleum and other you know products <coughs> for example i just i i'm taking this conversation a little back uh, to livelihoods at this point but if you look at the fish workers so all our oil is imported through the sea and so the the lng terminals the oil importing terminals the ports are obviously on the coast and uh, it's these are also spaces for fish workers uh, women have a very specific role in fish work uh, in, in the whole you know work of fish uh, catching which is that they the once the fish lands the drying of the fish is done by the women the sorting of the fish is done by the women the women actually have a little share that they get which they send then who sell as head load vendors this is their income this is something that empowers them this also helps them have a relevance in the family in terms of an economic activity with increasing import of oil and gas for petroleum and gas as energy and material you see that uh, there's a lot of water pollution there's a lot of sea pollution and uh, fish workers are having to go further and further away into the sea 
to collect fish and also the fish landing sites are getting polluted so the fish workers are landing far away from the the fish landing site of that particular village so women are then not able to go to those fish landing sites and play a role in this whole you know livelihood process and that that challenges their economic sovereignty their independence even the relevance in an economic activity thereby affecting their position in their own homes now when the government is saying that we want to we want india to become a hub you know for petrochemical production refining and production that also means that they have not also considered uh, i mean while they have not asked anyone in the villages they have not asked any community you know what they think men or women but they also not recognizing the specific and unique impact on women over and above what how it impacts men so it's true that community no community is being asked but it's also true that the government is not recognizing that women specifically need to be asked right so so that i think is is a very serious problem and uh, uh, bargavi absolutely has laid a very wonderful way of how we need to go you know forward uh, on this uh, having said that civil society really needs to challenge the government on its need for oil and gas its dependency on oil and gas and we as a voice need to also raise this question of using energy as a reason to bring in oil but diverting it you know to to other uses for example the coal to pvc plant you know that's coming up in undra uh, where coal is actually an energy right it's a source of energy but it's being diverted to the production of the pvc which is really used in plastic you know so how is that a valid uh, you know argument of uh, making people uh, more secure energy wise but using sources of energy for uh, extremely problematic products that are being produced which are problematic in the production and in the disposal something that ashi already has pointed out yeah. so recently i was reading that um, the interstate power transfer from a renewable energy plant uh, to the other uh, state is uh, going to be removed and it's going to be made easy for the renewable energy producers as long as the energy is going to be produced uh, is going to go for the production of green hydrogen and green hydrogen is used for fertilizers and a whole lot of other industries that just doesn't make um, sense because if the renewable energy can light up rural homes which should be like top priority um and then to industry uh, you know it will make sense if we really believe in making uh, 100% electrification in, uh, in india true and make, to make sure that nobody is left behind um, and not to fuel another industry like to answer i think what can be done or like whether there is a hope uh, we uh, know that recently uh, we have uh, recently the uh, the climate funds have increased like uh, one example could be the india uh, green mission uh, fund through um, which uh, the idea is to reforest or uh, uh, you know go for afforestation uh, programs and uh, given like india is uh, drastically losing its uh, forest cover this is also uh, this was also welcomed by most of the people but um the recently uh, in one of uh, 
the meetings in um, Uttar Pradesh, the uh, women from the Forest Working Union, they have said that uh, using the pandemic and uh, you know the lockdown that was there, how uh, for de- uh, forest department uh, people and uh, police came and they had literally burnt their farms and uh, you know w- their community farmings and all of that and dug up the thing in order to plant saplings like as ironical as as stupid as it sounds that is what they did and in the process of these women uh, resisting they have burnt their homes like many were uh, taken um, detained in police station beaten including uh, you know minor uh, girls like were uh, 14 years 15 years and village after village like this was a common uh, problem that the women had reported in that public hearing and it was they did not report it in uh, a sense of uh, as a victim or as uh, you know what can we do but that they their thing was our it is our right we have a right over this land and we have lived in this land and we have reclaimed this forest and we are not going to move and they they ha- they came with such a force that you know they are going to fight the forest department and uh, you, uh, and uh, and because basically what they did was a violation of the Forest Right Act. So they are willing to fight and they are fighting and resisting. And many of them had uh, been brutally uh, beaten, but they are not willing to uh, lose the fight or take a step back. So what I want to say is that women are leading and that goes for all of whether it is uh, you know, coastal women, or we have seen uh, recently, it was a Muslim woman who had, um, whether it is the, uh, you know, uh, NRCCAA protest or this fight against jihad, or um, even in Dinkia, we have Adivasi women who are leading these fights. And uh, to go back, you know, to uh, a place where, uh, and women have uh, led throughout history, like even today, we, uh, this day that we are having this conversation is because women uh, fought for their equal pay and uh, dignity of work, and they had changed history. And even currently in terms of uh, climate change, also it's led by women, younger, I mean, actually girls, like whether it's Disharavi in uh, India who, uh, was arrested or uh, Greta, the Greta Thunberg. It's these are the uh, women and uh, people who are leading us in this uh, change, and that is a very positive thing. And uh, as far as uh, we uh, have uh, these inputs, whether it is women and, and especially like Dalit women, Muslim women, or trans women, or uh, and minorities, the more we have these different uh, voices and especially the voices of the oppressed. And that is when we democratize our uh, space, democratize our policies. And uh, that is uh, precisely why we need to uh, fight and support those fight of those uh, women who are leading from the front. Talking perhaps sort of taking it back to energy access, I will I've just been thinking about how while, of course, access to energy is important, what keeps coming to mind is there is so much more infrastructure that is required for um, women to be able to access it. And, uh, and of course, it's important, like with everything, um, to not see gender in 
isolation because it's proven that uh, innumerable studies that gender inequality is higher where there is income inequality where there is uh, more uh, unstable uh, employment so um in general for women also i think while talking about the women question it's good to remember that it's general um, inequality in a generally more widely uh, society in terms of whatever it is in terms of other uh, oppressions also will necessarily almost always translate into more uh, gender violence and discrimination and uh, other than that of course having a lot more other infrastructure in place that allows uh, one not having certain infrastructure like refineries and waste to energy plants etc in place so not having that uh, which will harm public health in general women's health in particular with the lack of sort of access to healthcare lack of um, access to uh, economic independence that can then be used for uh, treatment uh, women are more definitely vulnerable to the adverse impacts of uh, things like this plants and uh, toxic uh, environments and then at the same time making sure that there is infrastructure that enables them to uh, have some more control over be it being in a house that uh, has more uh, appliances that makes housework easier or uh, energy that is more uh, equitably distributed across the country yeah i think in addition to um, having better policies programs schemes for uh, skill building and things like that i think we have to put a complete stop to all the human rights violations that takes place in the context of the energy landscape uh, where women are beaten and put into jail and sexually harassed and they go through so much abuse and that has to end and that again is a point that everybody needs to make a lot more noise about yeah trying to read, uh, read or look up something for this and it was interesting to see that even till now 59 uh, economies do not have laws against sexual violence and there are actually countries that uh, prevent uh, married women uh, from going work and uh, uh, and uh, one out of four economies actually have uh, do not hire women for specific jobs so uh, yeah we have that we still have a long way to go i think so thank you so much everybody for joining us today it was amazing to listen about energy and women and all we know that we have a long way to go but still we are missing the beginning so thanks a lot thank you thanks everyone thank you kavita Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show and once again greetings of the International Women's Day.